What I do at that point is to rely on my own sense of the odd. The observations are then slotted together, but not so much by across the field of vision. Rain, varnish, the flagstones and the dull light outside the French windows. When you listened, you could hear it dripping down through laurel and rhododendron into the roots and the heaps of dead leaves. A story about, in a ghost story, how do you know who's alive and who's the ghost? What if it was a struggle? We imagine it as a struggle between the survivor and the kitchen. The cat stared up at me. You don't say much, do you? I said. There was a small black creature with the experimental approach. What happened in 1532, you don't know. That's all there is to it. Anything you make out of 1532 is a fiction, and it's convenient to you. What, us? Making stuff up? Whatever next? Hello and welcome to the Fictional Podcast with me, Richard Lee. Autumn's here, so it's time for a new bunch of stories and a new series of fantastic contributors. Over the next few weeks, we'll hear from Irena Carper, Sean Patrick Burney, Shauna McKay and Catriona Bolt. But here and now, we welcome M. John Harrison, who joined us down the line from Shropshire, along with a creaky chair and some high-performance engines from the garage down the road. We started with a couple of sections from his short story, I Can't Tell. The most passive, aggressive communication I ever received was from a man named David. A note that went approximately, just writing to say that X died a week ago. The funeral was yesterday. I didn't go. X had been central to both of our lives some years before. I hadn't kept up with her and I drifted away from him too. The note was handwritten on lined paper pulled from a spiral-bound notebook. There was no return address. I stood by the kitchen stove in my bare feet at half past eight in the morning and I wondered why he had sent it. I wasn't even sure he knew where to find me. At that time I lived on the edge of the Peak District in a terrace of stone houses. They were unprotected from the weather that came down off the moor and filled with smoke when the wind blew from the east because the chimneys didn't draw. I put on my shoes and went out. I walked about all day until it was dark and I got hungry and then I went home. While I was cooking, I had another look at David's letter. I wanted to ask him who he thought he was to tell me the date of a funeral the day after it went off, and proceed to add that he hadn't gone anyway. Then I folded the letter back up and sat looking around at my things. A day or two later, an email arrived from some people I knew in Kent, people I remembered better than David, asking if I'd house sit for two or three weeks while they were in Guatemala. It might be a month, they wrote. A month seemed fine and Kent seemed a long enough way away. It's important to orient yourself in someone else's house if you aren't going to be there for long. You want to be sure where the kitchen is. You want to be certain that the doors don't lead to any surprises. You feel excitement, you feel a kind of energy, not quite physical. You keep the keys in your pocket in case you lock yourself out. 
The property was comfortable and had a lot of rooms. Its most welcoming aspect was the number of bathrooms. They were everywhere, in different sizes and styles. The one I felt most comfortable with offered a bath as well as a shower. It was ensuite and smelled of talcum powder. The bathroom scales, fusty looking with long, comfortable use, were its most interesting feature. At first, they seemed to be suggesting I was 15 stone. And that they beeped repeatedly, displayed error and switched themselves off. That felt like language. It felt like a real communication, unlike David's letter. I would say that another likeable feature of the house had to be its garden. The lawn sloped at an odd angle across the field of vision. Rain varnished the flagstones in the dull light outside the French windows. When you listened, you could hear it dripping down through laurel and rhododendron into the roots and the heaps of dead leaves. Further out, behind a low box hedge with its own gate, lay a second paved area full of yew and privet in tubs, trimmed into cones, spheres and cylinders as tall as a person. Between them were distributed, apparently at random, objects from a Felix Kelly Fantasia, a patinated Italian garden bench, a rectangular pool, its corners improved by bits and pieces of broken sculpture, a pergola like a wrought iron bird cage, and a plinth with an urn on top. The topiary was charming, but ragged. None of the volumes were quite geometrical, and yet sometimes observed from the house on a dull day with a shaft of light striking between the still shapes. The whole had less the feel of an illustration in a children's book than of something presiding and real. The first morning, I turned away from the window for a moment, and as I turned back, a cat appeared out of the laurels, pursuing something that I couldn't see. I tapped on the glass. The cat paused and stared over its shoulder. Whatever it had been chasing ran up an apple tree. At lunchtime, while I was rinsing some pans and taking the opportunity to hold my hands under the warm water from the tap, the cat appeared at the back door, expecting to come in. I hate the noise saucepans make. I told it. People always know you're at home when they hear the saucepans clanging about in the kitchen. The cat stared up at me. You don't say much, do you? I said. There was a small black creature with solemn green eyes and two or three white hairs almost invisible on its forehead. As far as I could tell, it was male, but not, as people used to say, entire. In the evening, I walked down to the filling station on the main road and bought two tins of cat food. We'll try you on this, I said, but if you get expensive, off you go. After it had eaten and licked around its face a bit, I picked it up and took it to the back door. And out you go at night, I said. The cat meowed at the door until I let it back in. Harrison has been disrupting the boundaries of genre since the late 1960s. Highlights from his illustrious publishing career include his Viriconium novels, which subverted fantasy, 
his Kefahuchi track trilogy, which explodes science fiction, Climbers, which transcends realism, and his anti-memoir, Wish I Was Here, published earlier this year, which, well, you get the idea. So where does a story like I Can't Tell come from? I asked him if he could, uh, tell. They often come directly from observation, so that pretty much everything you heard there was written down in a notebook in circumstances very similar to that. They're not entirely like that. The cat, for instance, is completely real. Those might be Polaroid photographs or video clips of that particular cat. What I do at that point is to rely on my own sense of the odd. The observations are then slotted together, but not so much by a narrative as by a sense I have that there is something odd in there that can be discovered on behalf of the reader across the story. That there's something in those notes that you need to get to or tease out or put next to each other. Yeah, or there's some combination of them, for instance, that will trigger me. I will take them out of their respective files and juggle with them and then put them away for three weeks because nothing happens. And then suddenly a new note will turn up and I'll think, wait a minute, here we go. Here's the pivot. Here's a hinge. And it might be the hinge between the first and last sections. It turns out, but of course I won't know that at that point. And out of that, any story that's going to be there begins to evolve. And in this case, it was a story about in a ghost story. How do you know who's alive and who's the ghost? What if it was a struggle? We imagine it as a struggle between the survivor and the ghost, as it were. If the survivor doesn't know that they're a ghost too, <laughs> then you're in trouble. <laughs> that is the basis for a piece of fiction. That impossibility to assess, in a sense, what is the foreground and what is the background, who is the central character and who is the minor character, who's dead, who's alive. For a story like this, a relatively short story, how many years of noting are you drawing together to form this artefact? This one was put together from about a year and a half's worth, but most of it was a two-week holiday in somebody else's house, as you've probably guessed. <laughs> <laughs> the advantage of writing like this is, you know, you don't have to write an autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come on to that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> It's not the same, of course, but it's a process that reminds me a little of something George Saunders told the Paris Review in 2019 about building a story out of bits. Yeah. He said, if you cut all the lazy shit out of a story, what's left will tell you what structure to put in place so that none of the good bits need to be lost. Yeah. Does that ring a bell? It does. I mean, I would add that when you find them and you find the right order, they will hold themselves together. And that will be the structure. That there's no need for anything over and above that? Well, certainly there's no need for any conscious addition to that, in a sense. For me, writing's always been an attempt to get away from the artificial plot, the artificial structure, the artificial story, and find out what these bits and pieces were saying to me, because I have the feeling that that's more organic than writing a plot. You could write horror stories or ghost stories using all of the material you've just heard with any number of preformed coat hangers to hang the material on. But that's what they would be. Preformed? Yeah, whereas this seems to me to, by the time it's finished, a story like this should seem to say something, as it were, real to you as the writer. You think, yeah, OK, I did something here. 
but it's not something you're aiming for as you go along. No, but there is a point at which you do know. There's a point at which you have got enough bits and pieces slotted in together or possible hinged relationships with one another to sit down and write, say, the first 10,000 words of something. The moment you do that, suddenly everything begins to fall into possible places. It's a quantum process. There's still only possible places, mm. but it hardens up as it goes. And suddenly you've got a spine. Once you've got to the end of the spine, you can go back and say, well, it needs shifting here. It needs an addition there. At that point, you become a what I would think of as a more workmanlike novelist. We're actually using various off-the-peg techniques to make adjustments. For me, the real procedure in any kind of writing, the delight of any given piece of writing is that state where you're not quite sure what you've got, but you know you've got something. And by God, you know, when it drops into place, that's the kick. I just heard an engine in the background. Is that yours? No, it's not mine. <laughs> I live about four doors away from a rolling road where they tune engines, mainly competition engines. We get a lot of noise from engines. There'll be some internal combustion now and again. <laughs> yeah, there is now and again. Yeah. That thing you were saying about knowing there's something there but not quite knowing what it is yet reminds me of Don Bartelmi saying that writing is a process of dealing with not knowing. Yeah. Firstly, embracing not knowing mm. and then dealing with it, mm. you know, and it's the embrace that interests me. The delight. Yeah. Yeah. It's the unlooked for. If I don't find the unlooked for in that arrangement of bits and pieces, then I'll put it back in the drawer until I do find something that astonishes me or floors me or fascinates me. Mainly because I think that then the rediscovery of it by the reader in the act of reading will delight them. That's the idea, right? Yeah. <laughs> it might seem to the casual observer that it's not very fiction-y. Yeah, I think it might. There was a stage where it was consciously not very fiction-y. Back in the late 1970s, early 80s, I would have expressed it to myself as the attempt to write fiction using non-fictional material and non-fictional structures. And then, you know, I went through a period of reversing that, turning it inside out and trying to write non-fiction using fictional techniques. And by the time you spent 10 years messing about like that, it stopped being conscious anymore. And it's just a thing that you do. You have these techniques, you have these ways of looking at things, and they operate automatically or intuitively, which is what you want. It's difficult to read this story, I can't tell, read it as fiction, and then go and read your memoir, or anti-memoir, <laughs> wish I was here, and then read that as non-fiction. Yes. Basically crossing them over all the time, right? Yeah, yeah to different degrees of conscious involvement on my own part. What I would prefer most of all is that when I'm writing something, that should happen accidentally. The techniques should slip around and surprise me. Partly because that's really useful. I just did a little piece about how Bob Dylan had influenced me. I chose Visions of Johanna, and I started out by writing a highly autobiographical couple of paragraphs, and then suddenly... I realised that the techniques had slipped slowly towards what you could only call new journalist techniques, which of course were perfect for the time we're talking about, 1968. And that from then on, I could allow it to slip into, not into fiction, but for instance, when you review a song, when you try to get over to the reader what it meant to you, you make up the synopsis. I noticed this while reviewing books. Essentially, you rewrite the book and your review is 
in essence, a rewrite of the book from your own authorial matrix. And I was absolutely fascinated to focus on the collision between the 19-year-old boy who loved Bob Dylan and the 78-year-old man who has a completely different view of Bob Dylan and of visions of Johanna particularly, which is a massively narcissistic piece of work. As long as you're technically proficient, there should be no difference between a fiction that is composed of non-fictions and a non-fiction that is composed of fictions. It's not just a matter of technique, though, it seems to me. They both seem to come in some sense from the same place. Is that just an accident, the fact that you're writing around the same sort of time? I was always fascinated as a young guy by the difference between fiction and non-fiction. I was fascinated by, for instance, Christopher Isherwood's massive guilt at basically having used autobiography to make fiction. And also for, as he put it, directing like a film director some of the events that happened in his real life so exactly so that he could write them down as fiction. He suffered massive guilt from that and wrote, I think, a book in the early 50s in which he admitted in shame to doing all this. While I was reading it, I thought, how dull. Christopher, how dull. You invented a form and it was brilliant. Why not take credit for that? There's no need to feel shame. From then on, I thought, well, you know, why not? Supposing you stripped out the category definition, you're left with writing. That's what I'm interested in. I guess there are some who might say there might be effects, maybe not on the work, but back on the life if you go about writing that way. In the 70s, I saw some terrible examples of how not to manage your life if you're going to write that way. I will name no names, but you have to watch that because I think certainly as someone who began with fiction, who began as a reader of fiction, you've got to watch that because at eight years old, you can't tell the difference between your fantasies and the fantasies of the writer that you're reading. Once you've understood that consciously and once you've tried to work with it, you get quite wary. I know exactly what I'm doing now and I often grin at myself from a distance. You're up to that old trick again, are you? Part of the reason that Wish I Was Here and I Can't Tell seem so similar is maybe just like props, incident stuff, the spiral-bound notebooks, the cats, the vets, the ragged topiary. But is it actually something of a clue as to the relation between them? I mean, in Wish I Was Here, the shrubs are next doors, whereas in I Can't Tell, they're in the back garden. Yeah, they've been actually transmitted to a completely different piece of geography. Yeah. About 200 miles away. But are they in some sense next door to each other, these two pieces of work? They're both doing the same job, which is to foreground that image of something which is a fantasy but looks real. They're both in their different place in the memoir and in the short story to cue that for the reader. Even the word fantasia is used. And a particular artist is mentioned, um, Kelly, what's his name? Felix Kelly. Yeah, he was a favourite of mine in the 50s and 60s. I often do that, make sure the reader has been given an image of the combination of, of technique, fantasy, philosophy, and whatever meaning this story has. You should cram in as many images as possible, I think, that reiterate that complex, that matrix. There's also a lot of writing about writing in both. There's David's notes to the narrator, or in Wish I Was Here, you've got M. John Harrison confessing that his hands are stiff, but not from typing, or (laughs) minting aphorisms about meaning. Is that a part of late style as well, wanting to kind of explore the craft? 
I think you, you get more honest about it as you get older, that it is an exploration. But I mean, I was already doing it as a young, quite a young guy, because I've always been fascinated in the work itself. At the same time, you don't want to write something that's dull. You don't want to write dull books about craft or dull autobiographical novels about, you know, how you felt one morning when it was raining. <laughs> you need to supply the reader with something interesting <laughs> as well. And for me, it's always been the bizarre or the odd or the weird that I can best entertain the reader with. There's also something that feels very early 21st century about them, that kind of sense of unreality, the impending doom. Is that just a matter of living where we are now? I think it's interesting that you should place it then, because for me, we live in a kind of smeared present that began in the 80s. And I'm always pretty well semi-consciously trying to describe that smeared present. Who knows where it will end or when? But I think we're still living with the echoes or more than just the echoes. Yeah, I don't necessarily mean the story is set in the modern day or whatever. I just mean that it feels very nowish to me. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. If you write out of your own personality, and if you write using more or less observational material, you'll catch some of the zeitgeist, whether you want to or not. And again, that's something that began accidentally for me. And then suddenly thought, wow, I can do that deliberately. You have to be careful, though, because that can be dull. You don't just want to be a zeitgeist writer or a futurist, a near-futurist. God help me if ever I became a near-futurist, <laughs> predicting the near future. What a dull job. Absolutely. In fact, they both, in some sense, seem to be circling around a similar attitude to the past, that the past is somehow unfathomable, irretrievable. Fiction has always been about that, in a way. Writing has always been about that. It's always been that struggle between living in the present and trying to somehow deal with the fact that there's been a past, either personally or historically or whatever, that writing is about that collision between living and, and remembering. Is that ever since Tristram Shandy with Lawrence Stern saying that he can't write fast enough to get it all down? Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's a physical fact, isn't it? You need more time to write about it than you do to live it. Yes, and what you tend to do is get ahead of yourself or behind yourself. And you experience these nauseating moments where you catch up. You realise yourself is maybe like five years out of date. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's partly why you can't write what you're trying to write, because you're not the same person. I've begun to think, and whether this is due to ageing or what, I don't know, that nostalgia is a very interesting concept. And that there might be ways of looking at nostalgia that could retrieve it for us from its state of being automatically assumed to be wrong <laughs> as it were and sentimental and kitschy that there are nostalgias that you feel as a human being that are so intense and awful and real that they might be worth looking at but at the same time you might look at them if you're me or if you're my kind of writer you would be looking at the weird end of that in fact you would be looking for the weird end of it to see what you could do most of what I've done for the last 10 years has pivoted on it. There are two space operas from that period, which are actually novels about nostalgia. And they're also about people experiencing it and trying to deal with it without perhaps knowing that that's what's happening to them. If you look at Nova Swing and Empty Space, they're both extremely nostalgic, both in terms of, say, the author looking back at the cultural mayhem that has produced him, but also the characters themselves in their own world. 
um, are experiencing something that they can't define to themselves, perhaps, as nostalgia. But that's what it is, yeah. really. Yeah. Elizabeth, for instance, in Empty Space, I think she's trapped in nostalgia without really knowing it, without having the mechanisms, psychological, emotional or intellectual, to identify it and deal with it. So that it's experienced as this pure, intense, inexplicable sadness. I was struck by the moment in Wish I Was Here where B cures her friend Melody's haunting by explaining it is not the responsibility of the living to redress or even facilitate the redeeming of wrongs in the past. Which sounds great, of course, but isn't it a bit convenient for someone living in the comfortable <laughs> West? <laughs> well, of course it is, in a sense. Um, and I think both B and Melody are written with an eye to suggesting that. But at the same time, it's true. There's nothing you can do about the past. My real point, to the degree that the author is involved in either Melody's or B's thinking, is that we don't even know what happened. We can't know. You can only guess from little bits and pieces. Items of evidence that wouldn't be considered evidence in physics, basically. They wouldn't be considered to be good enough. They might be good enough for religion. They might be good enough in a courtroom, but they're not good enough for any genuinely experimental approach. What happened in 1532, you don't know. That's all there is to it. Anything you make out of 1532 is a fiction and it's convenient to you. In fact, I think B says that at some point. Basically, we structure the past out of what we need for convenience in the present day. We look at the past we want to see. I'm just wondering if it's a theory that gets people off the hook for the responsibility to fix wrongs in the here and now. I'm sure it does. And it's based also on a kind of late 1960s and early 1970s futurism, which goes move on, always move on, always move on. We can do nothing about the past. And certainly I wouldn't operate it in the context that you've described or designed there. That's not the context that as an observation it was designed to be used in. It's more to do with freeing yourself from the idea that you can understand what the past was. If you understand it in a certain way and you decide to do something about that in terms of repair, the making of reparation, then of course you should. That's the only moral thing to do. I'm just wondering if a piece of fiction like I Can Tell, which kind of gets you in ways that you don't quite understand, whether one of the ways in which it gets you is one where that realisation that the past has been and gone and unknowable might seep out into our wider lives in slightly unfortunate ways. I guess it might. But I can't really add to that. <laughs> Do you feel that's a risk you're prepared to run? It's a risk that I wasn't taking when I wrote it. And I would kind of expect the reader to be able to decode the ironies inside the technical vehicle designed to be constantly saying the opposite of what appears to be being said. And also which tries to present quite a cold perception of everybody in the text. I think that's really important. We have this really weird perception that comes mainly from popular fiction, which is that the central character is the character that the reader should identify with. I've always made my characters very, very unrelatable in the hopes of preventing that, because I think that fiction should, to a degree, be read like non-fiction. 
it's not there for you to put on like clothes and reenact. That's not my purpose in writing it. I'm not trying to script the reader's behaviour. You say that all the characters are very unlikable. What about Ravelli the cat? Ah, well, yes, now. (laughs) Cats have got a ticket for that. God gave them a ticket. They can be completely unlikable and you still feed them. Ravelli gets into a confrontation with a decent-sized mouse. (laughs) The, The narrator, without giving too much away, tries to help the mouse. So I want to ask, what about you? Whose side are you on? (laughs) <laughs> the the outcome of that particular narrative is extraordinary because the mouse becomes the judge of everybody's <laughs> behaviour <laughs> like in a couple of sentences too which I was quite proud of there's a flip but I'm on the mouse's side you know 100% on the other hand you know I'm definitely a cat person life is difficult and ambivalent Difficult and ambivalent indeed. That was M. John Harrison. To read I Can't Tell, as well as brand new stories from Irena Carper, Sean Patrick Burney, Shauna McKay and Catriona Bolt, head to Fictionable on your mobile, tablet, laptop or internet-ready V12 and hit subscribe. You'll get a year's worth of exclusive new short stories and comics. You'll also get unlimited access to our ever-expanding archive of stories from writers including Joyce Carol Oates, Ali Smith, Alain Mabancou, Sabah Khan and Isabel Greenberg. We always love to hear what you make of our podcast, our blogs and, of course, our stories. So at us on Mastodon, Instagram or Twitter or drop us a line old school on info at fictionable.world. You could even record something on your smartphone, send us the audio and who knows, you might just wind up on a future edition of the Fictionable Podcast. Talking of the future, next time Irena Carper will be settling some old scores. It's like check and mate, my math teacher. Like I and reading from this. her story, fellow traveller in both Ukrainian and English. With thanks to M. John Harrison, that's all for this time. So from me, Richard Lee, and everybody at Fictionable Towers, thanks for listening and goodbye. Bye.